Father God, we come before you now once more in the powerful name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We recognize, Lord, that this is the only name by which we can approach you. But it is in this name that we can approach you always, without fear, with confidence, and with love. So we come before you now, and as we have come to this point in the worship service where we open the word and you proclaim truth to us, we ask that you would take hold of our hearts here collectively and that you would incline them heavenward, upward to you. We live in a world full of noise, a world full of distraction. So here now, Lord, we ask that you would be gracious and by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would drown out that noise, drown out the distractions and allow us to singularly focus here on you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That you would open our eyes, that we would see the excellencies, the glories, the beauty, the majesty of you, God. And as you open our eyes to to that glory, that beauty, that excellency, we ask, Lord, that it wouldn't just be here and now, but it would be something that we behold and that would last. And the more glory and beauty we see that you have, the less that those things that the world calls beautiful delight us and dazzle us. We ask that our hearts would be united to fear your name. We live in a culture now where fearing God is is viewed as a negative thing. But everybody is so scared of everything. We know when we rightly fear you, when we rightly reverence you, then we have no need to fear anything in this life. So help us fear your name now through your word. Satisfy us with with your steadfast, extravagant grace and love. Lead us into all truth. I ask that my words be pleasing in your sight, God. Holy Spirit, do what only you can do. That is, take hearts that are dead in sin and give them life. Bring them to saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Take slumbering hearts, perhaps, within the church. Those who have walked with you and have grown tired and begin to slumber, wake them up. For those of us who are walking with you, strengthen us and encourage us and exhort us to give ourselves even more to you. Holy Spirit, only you can do these things, and so we trust you to do it now. In Christ's name, amen. Well, we are continuing with our series to the gospel according to Luke. And so if you take your copy of God's word and turn with me to Luke chapter 1, we are going to look at Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38 again. Last week, we looked at those uh, in part because we looked at Mary, and we addressed who is Mary biblically and who Mary is not. And we did so in large portion by looking at the wrong, unbiblical views that the Roman Catholic Church has regarding Mary. So having an understanding of Mary and who she is, now we can look at this amazing message uh, in these verses. And so what we're going to see today is this is the Savior foretold, the birth of Jesus foretold. So I want you to imagine once more being a young woman somewhere in the ages of 13 to 16, and you're engaged to be married. The angel Gabriel appears. He tells you that you're going to have a son by a virgin birth, and that that son will be the savior of the entire world. That that boy you're going to have is no ordinary child, but that he will be truly God. (laughs) 
<clears throat> that he'll be truly God and truly man. <clears throat> Such a situation, a scenario seems impossible. <clears throat> it sounds make-believe, it sounds fictional. And in one sense, it really is impossible. But though it seems impossible, it's not fictional. It's real life. It's truly what happened. And so this morning, what we're going to see is that through Mary, God will do the impossible. And he will send his Holy Spirit to come upon Mary, that she would conceive a child, and that child would be the Son of God the savior of the world. Now I want to say at the outset that this passage contains a lot of doctrine, a lot of biblical theology. And so the overarching application of passages that are like this is quite simply we are to worship our God. I know oftentimes we want three points of application. The application here is going to be just overarchingly worship God. So let me read the passage, and then we'll set the stage and jump in. Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. She was very perplexed at this statement and was pondering what kind of greeting this was. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and there will be no end of his kingdom. But Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I'm a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month for her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. <clears throat> and Mary said, Behold, the slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So let's set the stage a little bit now by way of review. Prior to the angel Gabriel appearing to Mary, we saw that the angel Gabriel had appeared to the priest as Zechariah. And Zechariah, told, Zechariah was told that he and his wife, even though they were old and beyond the age of being able to naturally have children, that they would have a son. And that son was to be called John, who we come to know as John the Baptist. And this was miraculous because a woman of Elizabeth's age does not have children. However, Zechariah doesn't believe what the angel Gabriel says. As a result, he is struck mute until the child is born. Then last week, the angel Gabriel we saw appeared to Mary, and we're seeing this morning. And again, he delivers a, miss, a mission. And so this teen girl, 
this small town girl who lives in a small, the small town of Nazareth is completely contrasted to Zechariah. Zechariah is a priest. Mary is an uneducated peasant girl. Zechariah is in Jerusalem. Mary's in Nazareth. Zechariah is in the temple. Mary is in her home. We also see that Mary is a virgin. She's unmarried. She's pure. She's had no relations with a man. And a little bit later, we'll see how important that is. Joseph is the man she's engaged to. He is a good man. Joseph is a righteous man. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 19, we saw we would see there uh, this similar scenario, but we see it from Joseph's perspective. And the angel appears to Joseph and says, hey, what Mary is telling you is true. Do not divorce her. But we're told there that Joseph was a righteous man. It was, it was considering divorcing Mary in secrecy because he didn't want to shame her. So she's engaged to a good, godly man. <clears throat> and as we see here, Joseph, it says in verse 27, was of the house of David. His family line comes from that kingly line. And that's an important detail that we'll explore in a little bit as well. Those are the people involved in this text. And all of this is happening six months into Elizabeth's pregnancy. So having that background there that's kind of within verses 26 and 27, let's go to our first point. And our first point this morning is the message, which is verses 28 through 33. And coming in, he said to her, greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. <clears throat> Mary's at home. She didn't hear a knock at the door. Jorbel didn't ring. Maybe she's in her room. We don't know what she's doing. But then the angel Gabriel appears. The unexpected happens. There is nothing in Mary's young life that would have prepared her for this moment. Standing face to face with a being so glorious that we would be tempted to worship. She can't process what's happening. And as she is taking it all in and trying to figure out what's happening, Gabriel begins speaking and he says, Greetings favored one. Now, favored one, those two words, it means for God to, to, to be shown grace, to be blessed. We saw last week in detail that this is not meaning that somehow Mary intrinsically within herself had some kind of grace, some kind of virtue that made her better than the other one, that made her favored by God. When the angel Gabriel says, greeting favored one, what he's saying is, greetings, you who God is choosing to show grace to. Favored one means that Mary is a recipient of the grace of God, not a source of grace. Again, people sometimes trip over the doctrine of election, but we see it all throughout. Election isn't always just talking about salvation. Mary did nothing to merit this great privilege, but she has been sovereignly chosen by God to carry in her womb the Son of God. She has been elected 
for this. Simply because God delighted to show his grace toward her. Greetings, favored one, meaning that she's a recipient of God's grace, also reminds us and teaches us here that Mary isn't sinless. Mary isn't, as the Roman Catholic Church would say, uh, free from the stain of sin from her birth. Every single person since Adam has been born to sin nature. Romans 3.23 tells us, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In weeks coming, we'll see that Mary herself confesses as much in Luke chapter 1, verse 47. And my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. So favored one here is not saying Mary's sinless. Favored one here is not saying there's something meritorious in her. Favored one means, greetings, one who God has chosen by his own free desire to show grace to Angel goes on, the Lord is with you. So this amazing truth of being favored by God, being shown God's grace, is followed up with an equally amazing statement and promise. Yahweh, God, is with you. Not only is he with you now, but he will continue to be with her. And all that will follow This greeting matters because Mary is about to receive a very shocking message. And she will then begin to live a very difficult life. And so this greeting by Gabriel is loaded with words of comfort. With encouragement. It's supposed to give her security. It's supposed to give her strength for what's coming. Mary. God has chosen you, he's given you grace, and he will always be with you. Isaiah 7, 14, and in the gospel according to Matthew, Jesus is referred to as Emmanuel, which means God with us. Interesting, Mary, God is with you. Almost a double meaning, Mary. God, the God that will be in you is the God with you. Now, if you're Mary, you're a young woman, you're engaged, your head is probably spinning right now. Maybe you need to sit down. Your heart's kind of pumping. What's happening? I don't understand. I don't know how to make sense of all this, which is what we see here in verse 29. But she was very perplexed at this statement. I was wondering what kind of greeting this was very perplexed, very confused, very confounded. Not only is she perplexed because an angel just showed up in her house, which isn't normal, but now the angel is saying these amazing words to a mere peasant girl. Even though it was striking that an angel appeared to Zechariah, a priest in the temple, because that hadn't happened in a while. It, I mean, if an angel is going to appear to anybody, you appear to a priest, right? But why do you appear to a young, betrothed peasant girl from a small town that nobody would recognize or miss? I understand my Mary feels confused, even fearful. 
One can just imagine Mary thinking, I'm a sinner. I'm a peasant girl. There's nothing unique about me. I'm a dime a dozen around here. How is it that I am to be favored by Yahweh? Followed by, what is it that Yahweh is going to want me to do now? Like, there's this also expectation. He didn't just show up here to say hi. What is it that God is going to expect of me? There's all these questions within her. And the angel Gabriel recognizes this. And he says to her, verse 30, do not be afraid, Mary. And he reiterates, for you have found favor with God. Do not be afraid. Same words that Gabriel said to Zechariah in chapter 1, verse 13. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. <clears throat> we see a similar statement in Genesis chapter 6, verse 8, talking about Noah. For Noah found favor with God. That should remind us that it's about God showing grace. Mary, don't be afraid. God wants to show grace toward you. Now, we, when we talk about grace, we speak about it very favorably as we should. The grace of God in our lives is an amazing thing. God has shown us saving grace. God shows us sustaining grace, sanctifying grace. But if we're honest and we think about it for a moment, grace, as amazing as it is, can also be a very perplexing thing in our lives, a very confusing thing in our lives. Because grace, God's grace does not always come with a pretty ribbon. Sometimes grace comes in very unexpected forms, which Mary is finding out here. For example... You don't get the job that you're so qualified for. You're beyond qualified. You killed the interview. You're ready. You get the phone call. Sorry, we need somebody else. But a year later, that company closes down. That was God's grace in your life. It's kind of perplexing in the moment when the grace was happening. <clears throat> Or you go to the doctor for a regular routine checkup. Doctor says, hold on, I think I see something there. And you get, find out you have cancer. But they caught it in time. Now you have to go through treatments and stuff. That was grace. God did, didn't need to bring that to the attention of the doctor as common grace, but he did. It's an unexpected form of grace. In my own life, I thought I'd be 20 years in the military. I was an atheist back then, a hard, just degenerate. That was my whole life in an instant. God allowed my foot to stumble, an error by another soldier, and my knees blown out, honorably discharged. What am I going to do with my life? God used that to get me back home here to the Chicagoland area and brings me to faith. That was an unexpected grace. 
Even as an unbeliever, God is showing unexpected, perplexing grace there. <clears throat> One that's a little closer to home for our church. You're given a special needs child. And at the moment, you don't understand what to do. And yet God uses that child to bring you closer to Christ than you ever imagined. It was God's grace to give you that special needs child. Because that child has been God's vessel to strengthen you beyond your wildest dreams. We can go on and on. Grace is perplexing sometimes. And it will leave us with our heads spinning. But it's still grace. Now, in verse 31, Angel Gabriel goes on after giving her this word of reassurance. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call, you shall name him Jesus. Now the message is being proclaimed to Mary. A message that nobody would ever expect. Think about this. The message of the gospel, from everything from the message to Mary and the incarnation and his perfect life and his substitutionary death and his resurrection. This is a message that no human mind could ever fathom. It's a message so great and so glorious, so unimaginable, that it would have to originate in the mind of God. Trace history. There is no God who, every, every other religion is about man reaching up to God. This is God coming down to man, taking upon flesh, being born of a, of a peasant girl, a virgin, living in obscurity, ministry starting at 30, serving others, laying his life down for others. This message is unexpected, unimaginable, and glorious. And it begins right here. You will bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. Now, names matter. Names are powerful things. Even last weekend after service, we sat around talking about what different names mean uh, of our own names. Gabriel is telling Mary, you're going to have a child, and that child is the promised Messiah. He is the Savior of the world. Because that is what is promised in his very name, in the name of Jesus. The name Jesus is the Greek version of Joshua. And it means Yahweh saves. In Matthew's account, Matthew 121, we read. And she will bear a son, you shall call him his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. There is more truth in that one name than we can ever imagine. To, a, to, to some degree, to say the name Jesus is to begin to share the gospel. The name of Christ summarizes the mission of Christ. His name declares his purpose. This young child that will be conceived in the womb of Mary will be the one that saves people from their sins. This is the, the focus of Luke's entire gospel. 
In Luke 19.10, he summarizes everything. For the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. Now, fathers name their sons. And that's actually what we see happening here. The father has said, Mary, the name for my son will be Jesus. But that name also points us to a promise, a fulfillment of a prophecy that we see in Isaiah chapter 7. If you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 7, a glorious chapter, you would see this in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Hundreds of years before this moment with Mary, the prophet Isaiah is given those words, and it's recorded. And here and now, as Gabriel sits with Mary, the fulfillment of those words is happening. We could even go further back to the very beginning. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the first echoes of the gospel. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. It's interesting, her seed. Seed is usually designated to the father, but here it's spoken of the woman, her seed. You see, all of the scriptures point to Christ. All of them. The Old Testament, we see types and shadows. In a sense, it's Christ concealed. Christ, the Gospels is Christ revealed. Acts is Christ proclaimed. The epistles is Christ explained. Revelation is Christ glorified. It's all pointing back to him. And the angel tells her, his name is Jesus. He's the savior of the world. That's a heavy message for a young woman to be hearing. But Gabriel's not done. He's going to make her head spin even more here. He goes on in verses 31 through 33. Let's pick up 32 since we just read 31. He will be great and will be called son of the most high. And the Lord will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And there will be no end of his kingdom. Now he begins to unpack the person and purpose. He will be great, Gabriel says. Jesus will be great because of who he is first and foremost. And because of what he does. There's a great, I guess you can say contrast perhaps, between John the Baptist, who was just foretold, and Jesus being foretold here. There's differences and, yes, common ground. Look at, a, look at a Luke 1.15. Talking to John the Baptist, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. And then if you go to verse 76 in chapter 1, talking to John. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. 
So John is great in God's sight. He's great as a prophet. But Jesus has said here, he will be great and will be called son of the most high. Jesus isn't viewed as great. Jesus is great. John's a prophet, but Jesus is a son. Jesus is greater than John the Baptist, which is why John the Baptist says, I'm not worthy to untie his sandals, that he's there to kind of lay the groundwork. He's the forerunner to the Messiah. Church, I want you to think about that. He will be great. Do you consider Jesus Christ as great? You might you believe in him, sure. But do you think he's great? Does your thought process, as you think of Christ, do you see him as the great one? Those of us who like sports, we're always talking about who's the greatest, who's the GOAT. LeBron or Jordan? Everybody knows Jordan. Not up for debate. Who's who is it? Is Brady the greatest quarterback ever? We have these conversations all the time. We spend more time talking about the greatness of men than the greatness of Christ. There is nothing in all of creation greater and more glorious than the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you don't believe that, and either you need to get the crusties out of your spiritual eyes or you're blind. Because you're not seeing reality. There is nothing and no one greater than Christ. Listen, we, we went through Colossians a few months back. So I want you to turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. Because I want you to see the words. Colossians chapter 1. Verses 15 through 20. This is the one that Gabriel is saying he will be great because of who he is and what he does. Colossians 1, verse 15. Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Everything is held together by the one here that Gabriel is saying will be great. Therefore, to see anything as greater than Christ is to be blind. Because anything that even has a glimmer of greatness is a contingent greatness. Because it depends upon Christ giving it its value. He will be great because he is great. He has always been great. He will always be great. His greatness will be unrivaled. He goes on to say, we'll be called son of the most high. 
a little bit later, he'll be referred to in verse 35 as the son of God. These are being used synonymously. To be referred to as son of the most high, son of God, means he's not just a regular boy. He's not a regular child. He is the very son of God. That phrase, most high, refers to God. A couple of psalms that were just to, to highlight that. I don't ever want you taking my word for something. Psalm 7, 17. I give thanks to Yahweh according to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of Yahweh most high. Psalm 46, 4. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the dwelling places of the Most High. Psalm 47, 2, for Yahweh Most High is fearsome, a great king over all the earth. In Psalm 57, 2, I will call to God Most High, to God who accomplishes all things for me. <clears throat> he is the son of the one true God. And if Jesus is the son of the one true God, that means he is co-equal with God. And therefore, this child will also be truly God, not simply truly man. Mary, you're giving birth to the God-man. This is why church history is often referred to Mary as the Theotokos, the mother of God. Because in her womb will grow the one who has two natures, truly man, truly God. And he is truly God. Some people like to push back and say that Jesus was a prophet or a great teacher or an angel. No, Jesus is God. Listen to John chapter 10, verse 30. I and the Father are one. That's Jesus' words. There's no ambiguity there. The Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 9, and on this translation, I think that uh, the Christian Standard Bible actually renders this passage better. Philippians 2, verses 6 through 9 read, Who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. He had become, when he had come as a man. He's equal with God in his ministry. He didn't exploit that. Hebrews chapter 1, 3. Speaking of Jesus says, who is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. Jesus is God, church. Jesus is man. We hold those two together. Will we ever fully understand how that works? No. Why? Because we're finite. It's not a contradiction. It's a mystery. He is co-equal with the Father. 
He has always existed from eternity past. God the Son has existed always. Taking upon flesh, God the Son is simply coming into the world. This isn't Jesus, the Son of God, coming into existence. He has always existed, coexisted, co-equal with God. God has always existed Trinitarianly, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is God the Son cracking into time and history now. He goes on to say, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. King David was Israel's greatest king. And God gave King David an extremely powerful promise. Listen to the words of 2 Samuel chapter 7. Second Samuel 7, verses 12 and 13. <clears throat> Yahweh's covenant with David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up one of your seed after you who will come forth from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This is immediately fulfilled in Solomon, but it has messianic implications because it points to the coming of Christ. Verse 16, a couple of verses later, and your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. He's promising David, one will come from your family line, from your tree, who will sit on the throne as king of glory forever and ever and ever. Psalm 89. Verses 35 through 37. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His seed shall endure forever, and his throne is the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, and the witness in the sky is faithful. Or Jer Jeremiah picks up on this amazing promise. Jeremiah 23. Verse 5, behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and prosper and do justice and righteousness in the land. These are pointing to this child that Mary is being told she will carry. <clears throat> the promised Messiah, the hope of Israel, the savior of the world. All of that's being fulfilled now, Gabriel tells her, because God, in his grace, has chosen you to conceive this child. Now, it says from the line of David, some people may be wondering, well, how is that possible? How is Jesus from the line of David? Family lineages are passed down by fathers. Jesus has no biological earthly father. So how is he from the house of David? Well, we saw earlier in this passage, in verse 27, that Joseph came from the, the line of David. <clears throat> so while Joseph was not biologically the father of Jesus, he is adoptively his father. And according to Jewish law and the way that was all set up, 
an adopted son would have legal right and inheritance to that family line. So Jesus is truly from the line of David. We'll see in Luke 3, Mary also has ties to the line of David. But here we see that that right, that inheritance is truly his. Verse in Jesus' genealogy in chapter 3, we see right here in verse 23, he's listed as the son of Joseph. But then in verse 31, who else is listed there? David. Sorry, verse 31, the son of David, the son of Jesse. Jesus is within the promised line of David. This is important because sometimes people want to debate, is Jesus really who he says he was? We argue from the scriptures. We see the fulfillment of scripture. Scripture is not contradicted, self-authenticating. It's a historical faith. It's interesting that these points are not even really the points that those who would have most knowledge, the Jewish community, argues it against. He's truly a son of David. And he says he will reign over the house of Jacob. And there'll be no end to his kingdom. So this child, the one that is co-equal with the father is a king. He will reign. Jesus is not a king. Jesus is the king eternal. When it says that he will reign over the house of Jacob, Jacob is a reference to Israel. Exodus 19.3 refers to Israel as the house of Jacob. But Jesus isn't simply the king of Israel. Jesus is your king. Jesus is my king. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10. Then it will be in that day that the nations will seek the root of Jesse, Jesse, Davidic line, who will stand as a standard for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. You don't make Jesus king. We don't vote Jesus to be king. Unbelievers would say, well, Jesus isn't my king. No, he's king. You're in rebellion to him. There is no end to his kingdom. Jesus is ruling and reigning now. He is seated at the right hand of the Father in power. Every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord, the glory of God. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. Let me ask you, do you struggle sometimes with believing God's word? Do you struggle in believing in God? Passages like this should, should strengthen you. Because the Bible was written by, 40 over, by about 40 different men, different educational backgrounds, different vocations three different continents, three different languages, 1,600 years. And yet we see fulfillment. We see the continuity. We see it all coming together. You can't make this stuff up. Passages like this show us that God is on the move, that the Bible can be trusted, that God keeps his promises, that you can believe in him.
Mary asks a question here in verse 34. How will this be since I'm a virgin? It's a stumbling block. I wonder, do you really believe that God supernaturally created a child in the womb of Mary? Do you really believe that Jesus is born of a virgin? More and more, this has become being denied by pastors, by professors, by scholars, by the everyday believer. They say things, well, virgin just means young woman. It would have been unheard of for a young woman back then in that situation to have been impure. It's not used that way in literature. Mary is truly a virgin. She has known no man. Do you believe the Spirit of God brought the child upon her? Now, Mary asking that question, she's not asking it in unbelief. Zechariah was in unbelief. Mary's is not in unbelief. Rather, Mary understands the immediate nature of it here. Wait a minute. How is this going to happen right now? Because the law of God says that I cannot lie with another man. I have known no man. You're saying, how is this to take place, Gabriel? There are not natural means that this can happen. She's not asking, can God really do this? She's asking, how is it that God will do this? I'm going to give scripture references here, but we can't have time to turn to them all. So write them down. I would encourage you. But have you ever asked yourself, why does the virgin birth matter? Here are a few reasons why. One, it fulfills the Old Testament. Isaiah 7, 14. The virgin birth matters because it also shows that Jesus will be truly man and truly God. He is God. He's always eternally existed. John 1, 1. The Heidelberg Catechism tells us why he must be truly man and truly God. Question 16. Why must he be a true and righteous man? Answer. He must be a true man because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which has sinned should pay for sin. He must be righteous. He must be a righteous man because one who himself is a sinner cannot pay for others. What that's saying is that Jesus had to be a man so he could identify with us, suffer for us, and he could also sympathize with us as our great high priest. Why must he be God? Question 17 of the Heidelberg. Why must he also be true God? Answer. So that by the power of his divinity, he might bear the weight of God's anger in his humanity and earn for us and restore to us righteousness and life, end quote. So he has to be fully God because only God could truly take the full wrath of God against sin. No mere man could withstand the wrath of God poured upon him. The virgin birth matters because it fulfills scripture. It matters because it shows us that Jesus is truly man and truly God. But the virgin birth matters also here because it shows us that Jesus did not have a sin in nature that was passed down from Adam. And this is critically important. I would write Hebrews 7.26 there as a reference. 
When Adam and Eve sinned against God, they were given that sin entered into them, and everybody after Adam inherited a sin nature. Everybody is born wicked and depraved. That cute little baby's got enough wickedness in it to make Hitler look like a choir boy if it isn't for the grace of God upon their life. But Romans 5.12 tells us that sin entered in through one man, Adam. So Jesus, not having a biological earthly father, did not have the sin of Adam passed down to him. He was fully human through Mary but he did not inherit original sin through Adam. It's extremely important. It isn't that Jesus had a, his nature was kind of neutral. What are you going to do? And he just was holding on there. He just, you know, he really got 10 out of 10 on the quiz. It wasn't that he did enough good to kind of cancel out a sin nature. Jesus came into the world without a sin nature. All of us come into the world with a sin nature. Therefore, as Peter 1.19 tells us, Jesus truly could be the spotless lamb of God. So how do we respond to all that? Through worship. We hold all that to be true. None of us can explain it fully and perfectly. This isn't a preaching cop-out because I couldn't think of it ever. It truly is worship. We worship. I'll end by saying this. We see the angel. I'm going to email you guys my notes. There's so many scriptures I wish we could cover. The angel tells or answers Mary's question. He says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. He tells her the Holy Spirit is going to be the one, Mary, that will bring life into your womb. In Genesis 1-2, we hear about the Spirit of God hovering above the waters, right? The Holy Spirit is often the life-giving agent. In John chapter 3, verses 5-8, through 8, we see how spiritual life is given by the Holy Spirit as well. The Spirit of God gives natural and spiritual life, and it is the Spirit of God that will come upon Mary so that she will give birth to the Son of God. Some people want details. How does that work? Somebody long ago said, where God is silent, man must be careful to not speculate. We don't know how God did it. But we know the God who can speak creation into existence can easily speak to the womb of Mary so the Son of God can be born. Again, we worship. Mary, the Spirit of God will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Again, referring more to the Holy Spirit. Overshadow in Exodus 40, verses 34 and 35, is, is used um, talking about the Holy of Holies. There's a sense here in which the womb of Mary becomes a holy place. The resting place of the Lord right now. The power of God, the presence of God is upon you, Mary, as this child grows within you. And he'll be a holy child, he says then. At the end of verse 35. He'll be holy because God has chosen this means. 
He's holy. Jesus is holy in two ways. He's holy because he has been set apart for the purpose of redemption. He's holy because he is pure and sinless. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that he who knew no sin became sin for us. 1 John 3.5 tells us Jesus never sinned. He is a holy child, son of God. It's a lot for Mary to take in as a young woman. God is so kind to her. God even goes a step further through Gabriel and says, and your relative Elizabeth, you know, she's old. She's pregnant, by the way. I did that. She's conceived a son in her old age. Elizabeth's pregnancy not only brings about John the Baptist and in the story of of redemption, but it also is a sign for Mary to trust the Lord. Elizabeth's pregnancy strengthens Mary's faith. The God who can give a child to Elizabeth in her old age is the same God who can bring the the Son of God into your womb. He gives that promise and he says, nothing is impossible with God. Do you believe that nothing is impossible with God? We tend to think about it in just very shallow terms, but context matters here. Redemption is the most impossible thing to think of. Sinful human beings being reconciled to a holy God by God's own initiative is the most impossible thing. You can spend your entire life trying and striving but it will be impossible for you to be reconciled to God on your own. But with God, nothing is impossible. God does the impossible. God takes upon human flesh and begins redemption, reconciliation. The God who can do that can do anything. The God who can do that can restore broken marriages, can restore broken identities, Can give purpose and direction in life. Can bring comfort in the darkest of moments. Nothing is impossible with God. That's why Mary's response is what it is. Slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. Mary takes all of this in. She gets it. Mary's response is, okay. Holy Spirit, do with me what you please. That's the proper response. The child that was born is the man who will die. Mary later on will be told that it'll be great pain brought to her because of the child. He was born to do the impossible. We're sitting here 2,000 years later. Because that angel Gabriel appeared to Mary and delivered that message. What the foretelling of the virgin birth shows us is that we have the greatest of hope. Because we serve a God who does not have the word impossible in his vocabulary. The doors of salvation have been opened. And you shall call his name Jesus, because Yahweh saves.
Let's pray. Father God, we come before you now in that name, that powerful name, the name Jesus. Every time we speak the name of your son, every time we speak your name, Lord, we ought to be reminded, humbled, and grateful that you are the God who saves. And that you've saved us if we have truly repented of our sin and trusted in your perfect life, your substitutionary death, and your resurrection, Lord Jesus. And so I prayed this morning for all of us to have a renewed sense of the beauty, the glory, the majesty of the gospel that begins with this virgin birth. Lord, may it be done to us according to your word. And for anybody here, Lord, who perhaps knows of Christ, but is not truly trusted in you, Lord Jesus, I pray that here and now they will hear that name. That they will hear the name Jesus and they will know that you saved God. All who truly recognize that they are dead in their sin and rightly judged before you can be forgiven because the virgin will bear a child and his name will be called Emmanuel. His name will be called Jesus. And you, Lord Jesus, came to seek and save the lost. I pray that they would trust in you now for salvation. Lord, this week, may our understanding and application of this passage simply be to worship you in the splendor of your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.